It's Zach Langley Kiki. I'm so popular. And tonight is the penultimate episode of season two. And to collect a lot of the threads of art and culture and apocalypse that I've been addressing this season, I brought on one of my favorite guests I've ever had to discuss two of the greatest works of contemporary art, the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and the film Vox Lux. And I have a wonderful special guest on. Who are you? Uh, Hey, well, I'm Yana. You all probably know me from Twitter. And um, (laughs) well, the last episode that we did together for your podcast on Glamorama and um, terrorism. (laughs) That's right. So, hey, Yana, what are you doing? Um, well, I'm just sitting here very nervous because this is a special episode. We're going to be um, doing our makeup on camera. That's for, right. For, well, this is the first time for me, so I'm nervous. Yeah. I mean, I find that video podcasts are one of the most evil and despicable forms <laughs> of, you know, anything that's ever existed. And yeah. Every terrible podcast I've ever known has a video component, and I think it's truly, you know, abject and disgusting And so to really embrace the whole (laughs) realm of what we're talking about, I thought it was crucial that we film this and and really make it a a whole proper project. Um, As we talk about... True, but there's also... Go ahead. Wait, sorry. I was just going to say there's a true crime element to it, right? Because it's like people will like talk about like gruesome murders and like do their makeup on camera. And it's like, get ready with me today. We're going to be talking about the murder of John Marie Ramsey or whatever. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I recently refreshed on a lot of those videos in preparation for today. And true crime is something I find also really repulsive in on hate fiction, which is a project you've started since our episode together. Um, You did a beautiful episode addressing it. And I think that filming this disastrous (laughs) makeup routine as we talk about one of the most pivotal moments in American culture is just exactly what has to be done. Yeah, no, it's I mean, it's perfect. It's um, it's evil. It's it's nerve wracking. What else could you want from it? Yeah. And I mean, for me, it's like I'm just doing it with like my computer camera. You have like seven cameras set up around you, which is um, I can't imagine. (laughs) It's terrifying. I I feel like, you know, all of these characters in the O.J. Simpson trial with the entire world looking at me at once, and it's, like, really high pressure. Like, I don't think I've ever felt such high stakes on the podcast before. Me too. I'm so, I was, like, I was, like, running around this morning. I was, like, oh, my God, like, I'm so nervous for this. And, I, and my mom was, like, why? Like, you do this every week. Like, why would you be nervous for this of all, of all things? But scary. Doing your makeup is a critical part of Zach Langley Chichi as a as a drag queen and an experience and also you know something that I've spent so many hours of my life doing at this point and to open that process up in a kind of format and like in a media form feels very personal I mean, it is. I think we talked about this, like, on the, well, the last episode of my podcast where we talked about Laura Palmer and stuff, about how, like, for women, right, it's, like, a whole, it's, like, the the process of becoming a woman is intertwined with, like, doing your makeup and putting on a face and stuff. So it's so personal. I feel, like, exposed. And I'm already wearing concealer, like, but, like, not having eyeliner on is, like, um, a traumatizing experience. <laughs> <laughs> it 
it's true. Like, I think that the, you know, private ritual of doing your makeup and creating the face that you present with to the rest of the world and that you kind of want to be known by to not only unveil the face that's underneath it, but then also to show the construction of it is a really bizarre form of media. And I just can't believe that this is like what most like women and gay people are spending their time watching on YouTube. No, that's so true. Like, um, I mean, he did an episode on the whole like Tati versus James Charles drama and good episode, by the way, great episode. <laughs> Thank <Loved> you. It. <laughs> but it, it is, I mean, it's, there's something so personal about it and it's, I mean, I think it's interesting that people do their makeup and talk about true crime a lot because those things are so similar in a lot of ways because it's like exposing yourself and your like desires and like pathologies and in such a an obvious way to the world. It's so weird that people like, yeah, do that all the time without even thinking twice about it. Yeah, you're so right. And, you know, thinking about us doing our makeup together and constructing ourselves, I think this is really like the big confluence of like what's been going on in my show and between like the mistaken art of Tati Westbrook and James Charles together and between our, our terrorism episode and all of the trash culture I've talked about as well as you know stuff about constructing your own reality and building your own image I think all of that yeah. is going to happen right now between us. And I'm, I'm both paralyzed with fear and really excited. <laughs> me too. No, me too. I'm, I'm, I'm scared, but it's going to be okay. We'll, we'll do great. Even if we do horribly, it's going to be exactly what it's supposed to be. It'll be camp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it will be camp. Exactly. So um, I guess we should start doing our makeup. When I was watching some of these videos about like with people being like, this is the Night Stalker, and I'm doing, like, my blue eyeshadow. It's, like, they do it with such, like, a casual indifference that I, like, really, like, don't even... I don't know how they do it. <laughs> um, yeah, we're gonna be talking about the gruesome murder of, a uh, 30... I should have looked up. How old was she when she was murdered? Like, 32? I... Yeah, she was quite young, because she was so much younger than OJ was. Yeah. Well, we're gonna be talking about the murder of this 32-year-old woman, and, um... Putting on box locks inspired makeup. Yeah, that's exactly it. So what do you start with um, when you do your makeup? Um, well, I usually start with concealer, but I already did that. So, and then I do my eyes. So that's what we're going to do. You do your eyes first. That's the one of the last things I do. Really? Yeah. I think it's because I, like, when I was a teenager, like, now I, like, wear lipstick all the time. But when I was a teenager and, like, going to parties, like, and making out with boys and stuff, like, I never wore lipstick. Because uh-huh. I would, like, always smear it at the end of the night. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I was always, like, an eye makeup person. And obviously that was also inspired by, like, Effie from Skins. Like, you know, like, the smoky eye, like, um, party girl makeup. Yeah. So, like, I just always, like, concentrated more on my eyes. So I think that's why I still start with with that. Yeah, I realize that I'm, like, out of, like, my concealer, which is where I usually start. So already off to a thrilling, thrilling beginning. (laughs) Um, Love that. (laughs) um, Okay, I guess we're not going to use any, like, beard blocker, and I'm just going to go straight to concealing my uh, under eyes here. And I see you use a brush, like, uh... Right off, right, right off the, off the start. But I literally just like smear my concealer on my face. 
I do the same thing. I put on blush with my fingers as well. Yeah. And I mean, I don't wear a foundation, so it's always just like, um, just do most of it with my fingers. You don't wear any foundation? No. Well, aren't you just the most beautiful thing in the world? Thank you. <laughs> um, so. You gotta stop talking about the murder. <laughs> it's really hard to, but I guess what, why I was thinking about this a lot was because uh, right around my move to Tokyo, I uh, I don't know what happened. Something kind of clicked, and I guess it was kind of in line with how I was going through all of keeping up with the Kardashians, like, season by season. And mm-hmm. I got to the point where I got to Kris Jenner's talk show, and I started getting really interested in her, and I ended up reading her memoir, where she uh, reveals kind of, like, mm-hmm. in detail uh, a lot about the... Uh, her experience with Nicole's death. And so then I went and read Jeffrey Tubin's kind of nonfiction book about it, where, mm-hmm. which is uh, the, they adapted that for the America, uh, the American crime story season. And yeah. I, I thought the whole thing was a really surprising piece of art. The way that I, I feel like in a lot of ways, this is where culture as we know it actually began. No, I think you're so right about that because I mean, well, I didn't, I didn't. Well, the only book that I read about it was the "If I Did It," the Confessions of a Killer, the O.J. Simpson book, uh-huh. which was fascinating in so many ways. I don't know if you read that one, I but um, it's so cool because like ninety percent of the book is just him describing his relationship with Nicole, like how it started, how they fell in love, like how they got married, how they had kids and stuff. And obviously, like, um, it was written with a ghostwriter, so he, like, literally just, like, talked, and the guy, like, wrote it down. And then in the middle of the book, out of nowhere, like, the murder happens, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, like, a hypothetical confession, so it's, like, him describing how he would have done it if he did it. And so it's so weird. It goes from him being like, oh, I was, I was trying, I was trying my best to be the perfect ex-husband, like being respectful of her, like giving her space, but like trying to be there for her children, helping her with her drug problem. And then out of nowhere, it's like, oh, and then I was standing there over her dead body with like blood all over me. And I don't know how that happened. (laughs) (laughs) And like the tone of the book just like changes so drastically out of nowhere. But the reason I like bring it up is because I thought like the first half of the book um, where he's just talking about their relationship and like the LA scene at the time was very like less than zero. You will never make love in this town again, kind of thing. Like eighties, mm-hmm. nineties, LA, like like thousand dollar a day, like coke habits, like that kind of thing. Which is like the culture that I grew up in and I've always adored. Yeah, I mean, it's a really thrilling sort of coterie that was going on over there, and. In Kris Jenner's memoir, she talks a lot about, like, the um, really, like, glamorous houses and the uh, endless, like, amounts of alcohol and, like, parties with these, like, glamorous police officers. And it seems kind of like this, um, you know, Calabasas and this part of California, like, seems sort of like a paradise on earth, uh, the way that she wrote about it. And even the big conflict of Kris Jenner's life then, which was uh, her being unfaithful to uh you know robert kardashian senior even that has like a kind of like a judith like judith Krantz like scruples beauty to it so it makes sense that like the serious way that you know nicole's death fascinated america was all staged in 
what's basically like American heaven. Right. I that actually makes me think of something um, like the People versus OJ American Crime Story season. Like in the trailer for it, there's this one moment where Sarah Paulson as um, what's her name, Marsha Clark. Clark, is like standing in her kitchen when she gets a call from whatever her boss, being like, "Oh, there was a murder in Brentwood," and she's like, "No one ever gets murdered in Brentwood, you know? Yeah. Like, it's the kind of place where people like just don't like nothing bad ever happens to people." So yeah, no, it, it is kind of. I mean, it's the perfect American dream, right? And the reason why it's so fascinating is because OJ kind of embodied that as well. Like, he grew up... Um, didn't he, like, grow up in the projects in, like, San Francisco or something? Yeah, so OJ was, like, really, like, a, like a, a, a classic American black man of the time and was um, sort of, like, emblemized as uh, someone who is capable of coming up from the projects and, like, defeating the evil of uh, race oppression to become a superstar, <clears throat> and so when he, like, kind of, like, abandoned his, um, you know, his roots in uh, poor black America and, you know, ran off to fiddle around with white girls in Brentwood, it, uh, very emblematic of, like, the road to black success at the time, I think. Well, right, it's like, whole like, I'm not black, I'm OJ. <laughs> <laughs> and I think no, there's... It's, uh... Oh, go ahead, sorry. No, 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 sorry, go for it. I, I don't even remember what I was going to say. I'm getting, <laughs> see, there was a part in one of those murder videos I watched where she was, like, talking about, she was like, oh, it's really hard to do this while you're talking. And I was like, really? And, like, now I realize it 100% is. <laughs> <laughs> it is, because you're trying to concentrate on two things at the same time, like, sounding smart and, like, looking beautiful, which two, the two things, like, don't. They're fundamentally in conflict. Yeah, exactly. Um... So, um, no, the, well, I was going to say, but I think it's really interesting not to like make it all about Ryan Murphy again, which I like, I talk about him so much. I think half of my podcast (laughs) is me talking about the evil of Ryan Murphy, but like, I truly think that like the fact that he made a whole season about it Mm -hmm. and like American Crime Story, just like the way the name of the series itself sounds is so like. I think symbolic of how important it was like the case was for American history and like cultural history in general. Cause I mean, American cultural history is um, international. That's right. It's the world's history. history because America yeah. is so oversized in terms of uh, like media representation and its cultural influence that all history is American history and all world history is also American history. It's, you know, one and the same. And, you know, I think bringing up Ryan Murphy is, is absolutely the right thing to do because he really is, um, with his evil demonic gay eye, he is truly a witness of culture in a way that I think uh, very few people are. Like, he understands something uh, kind of dark and malevolent about what's going on in the country uh, so clearly that uh, his sort of hedonistic display of it on American Horror Story and even, like, American Crime Story and, like, The Destiny of Me, like, the Larry Kramer adaptation. Like, all of it uh, points to these, like, large, sweeping moments of culture. Like, I really think he was right to... He knew what he was doing, and he was right to center a season of the show around it. Like, it really emphasizes just how grandiose, like, this stage is that uh, this murder happened on. No, that's so true, and I find it really funny, because there are moments throughout the whole um, season where they just, like, focus on the Kardashian. 
family, the Kardashian girls, whatever. Right. There's this one scene in, um, I don't remember which episode, like in the beginning of the series where the trial is first beginning and like Robert Kardashian is first like starting to be on TV all the time. And they go to uh, like him and all of his kids, they go to a restaurant for Father's Day and um, there's like a huge line there. And he's like, oh, do you guys like want to go to a different place? Um, we're probably not going to be able to get a table here. And then a waitress overhears them and she's like, oh no, but you know, are you, are you, um, she like, I think, like mispronounces his name or something and she's like oh are you the guy from tv like do you want to um we have a table for you like do, you can choose whatever table you want mm-hmm. and they sit down and either like little kim or a little um i forgot oh my kim God. or courtney chloe is, or courtney yeah yeah whatever which <laughs> one of them i think it was kim actually and she's like oh like um that's so cool like we don't have to wait for a table like this is what fame does and he's like famous dad basically he's like oh you know like me and your grandparents were trying to like instill in you the idea that like you should be a, a good person first and everything else like comes second and you know fame is not something you should aspire to and obviously that's like so meta considering what happened well yeah because the, it makes so much sense that the kardashians were birthed from this moment and i've been theorizing that chris jenner is actually like satan or not in like a the way that people imagine her to be but like she's actually like a fallen angel who keeps creating mass moments of culture now willingly or otherwise and her being involved with the uh nicole case the creation of kim kardashian and the creation of caitlin jenner like some of the most important moments of pop culture in like the last like you know 30 years like her being a part of all of that makes me think that somebody like sent her to earth to to do something but um yeah, when it comes to fame, that's really one of the leading critical elements going on in this case because I don't think that fame like existed in the same way it did before this uh, public trial happened in front of uh, the um, entire American eye, basically. I think, well, yeah, definitely. Like, the form of it changed but i think it kind of did just in smaller quantities like when you Mm -hmm. think about like the 27 club or like you know like all these like rock stars like super young like because fame as an idea is a 20th century concept right like it didn't really exist before and it sort of got progressively darker and progressively more tied to death and destruction and terrorism as the century progressed like i guess the nicole brown simpson case was the first big like cultural aha moment like this is what fame does like this is what this is what it's all about but like little glimpses of it existed before i think yeah because this i think is one of the first times that um madonna is also one of the people who was able to start doing this and i mean she started earlier in the 80s with her idea of like mystique and everything but um this was one of the moments where performing reality and having actuality you know unfolding right in front of your very eyes and then immediately turning that into narrative and basically creating like you know cultural scripture from uh you know what's what's actually happening in reality like i think that that definitely started um or at least like was completely detonated when this trial happened in front of everyone and of course like the the first big moment of that is, you know, no one gave a fuck about, you know, maybe some tabloids probably were reporting about Nicole's death immediately, but then OJ got in the Bronco. 
Right, the cheese. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, I think, well, the thing about Nicole, though, because obviously that's a more classic tale, like a rich white woman gets murdered, like, are there drugs involved? Like, what happens, you know, is this a robbery or whatever? Like, that's, I think, a story that's still exciting to people, but it's not as exciting as the destruction of this big cultural figure that OJ was. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's exactly right. Because um, obviously, like, beautiful dead white woman is compelling. Like, I mean, David Lynch knows this super well. And, like, he was, you know, already well aware of it before the OJ Simpson trial happened with, you know, Twin Peaks, uh, the first season, like, being out in, like, 1990. But, like... Yeah. Then it happened. Like, then it, like, really happened. And the most, like, beautiful, like, angelic white woman with, um, you know, the personality streak of uh, an, a light interest in drugs and, you know, sexual excess. You know, the, the simple pleasures of life, really. But, like, her, her yeah. she was the perfect person to die to kind of make this whole cultural vortex start turning. No, you're right. And the fact that it was tied to fame and what fame can do for people, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think the O.J. Simpson thing is really interesting because it's the American dream, but it's not the American dream in a work hard for, you know, work hard for what you want. Like, then, you know, you're going to go to the best college and you're going to get the best job and, you know, you're going to be able to afford a house and a white fence and a dog and, like, a family or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's much more, like like a quick rise to the top through your exceptional abilities, which right. is sort of the unspoken American dream, right? The the dream of like fame and fortune, but without much struggle or yeah. like struggle in your early life, but without like the struggles to the top, that kind of thing. Right. Because there's something so much more compelling and, and graceful about somebody who um, kind of rises to, you know, fame and prominence, not from hard work, which, you know, of course, you know, Americans respect as well, but just merely from, like, their beauty and charisma, which is, of course, like, OJ was a, a wonderful athlete and was very influential, but, like, the way that he was mostly known in the American consciousness was, like, through, like, uh, you know, film appearances and, like, being in, like, commercials, which is so fitting, and, um, like having his image like his physical form like so perceivable and it made that first moment that he got in the bronco and started driving in that slow that slow speed chase you know through la in that bronco that's what made that image like so immediately fascinating i think no definitely and i think you know what i also find really interesting about well the chase and what came before the chase like the fact that he um, cause he left a suicide note at Robert Kardashian's house, right? With all those misspellings. Was, with all those misspellings on a smiley face. <laughs> and he was going to kill himself in Kim's room, which would have been so. <laughs> I wish. Too. I mean, who would have known what would have happened then? But I mean, um, like there is something, I feel like the, this moment in, in history is, like, when so much, like, cultural static was, like, you know, actually, like, beginning to reach an outlet of some kind. And it, like, feels so fitting that he was, like, contemplating death and what would be the room of the most famous woman in the world. Right. Yeah. I mean, no, absolutely. 
I just, I mean, the whole case is so, like, mind-blowing when you start thinking about it, like, how everything is, like, tied together and how it's, it's almost, like, it's too, the story is too perfect to be true, too perfect to be real. I just opened my, um, my new contour and highlight. This is from Sweet Sweets Tokyo, and it is definitely a. I'm putting it up to the camera like they do in those, in those videos. <laughs> oh my gosh, should we do that? Oh my gosh. Yeah, I want to know what products you're using. <laughs> <laughs> Doing this, it's called. Um, but I'm just using like the sparkly white color. Oh, cute. Um, and I bought this black eyeshadow from the makeup store um oh my god i just have to complain about this so like i went to the store to get um black eyeshadow because i knew that was like a look i wanted to go for and because for some reason i didn't have black eyeshadow and they don't really sell black eyeshadow anymore that's not a thing like you know how in the early like yes or whatever there were all these like little like palettes with like you know like like perfect like um smoky eye um, combos don't those don't exist anymore like people just don't do smoky eye anymore people just like don't use black eyeshadow that was like the blackest one i could find and it's not even like sparkling which is disappointing you know i actually noticed as well recently because i was planning to do a um black eyeshadow look at one point and like really do kind of like a smoky eye like uh, death goth moment and i went to like a japanese equivalent to sephora and like there was nothing. There was there was not like one black shade, and I ended up getting like a silver instead, which is not what I wanted. It's, no, it's very disappointing. And that, that was about to be like my Joker moment. Like, <laughs> like, what happened? You know, we don't. We live in a society. Like, what happened? But like, honestly, like, what kind of makeup are people doing anymore? It's like it's very confusing to me. I see like, honestly, everyone's kind of like doing drag queen makeup, and I find it quite atrocious. I mean, it's either, like, drag queen makeup or, like, um, like nude eyeshadow palettes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> which has been happening since, like, the early... I mean, it's very Kardashian-inspired, though. Like, you know, like, the mm, naked... Naked... Um, what's that? Urban Decay naked palette. Um, like, nude eyeshadows. Uh-huh. Like, that... I, like, remember being, like, in middle school and everyone was, like, obsessed with that palette. And that's still happening. Like, those still, like sell out at least here oh my god this fucking contour i bought has like no pigmentation at all oh no <laughs> should i jump off a cliff yeah i think that's i think that's appropriate oh god i, I literally imagine this would happen because like okay you know what we're gonna do we're just gonna put so much of it on that it ends up making an impression um yeah so <laughs> I'm thinking about how when this was going on, my mom, she watched the Bronco chase on on TV and she was traumatized, actually, I think. She was, like, really disturbed by uh, watching this all happen in in the public eye. And, like, I think she was in Seattle at the time. And um, her being in Seattle, she was just, like, at home while my dad was, like, doing commercial fishing and she just, like, watched, like, who she already imagined to be the murderer just, like, uh, being, you know, perceived, uh, you know, to be let go. And uh, they were, co- they, like, interrupted so much TV coverage uh, in order to, to show this chase. 
And I'm just thinking about how many, like, households in America were just, like, watching this man drive down, drive in a white car through an L.A. freeway. And it's like, has anything more American ever existed? Well, it's, it was, it's like the first 9-11, right? It was like 9-11 before 9-11 happened. (laughs) Yeah. No, it seriously is. Like, this absolutely touched so many people. And, um, this was the beginning. Like, it just started at then. But little did anyone know that this was going to go on for, like, 11 months. Like, the trial was famously long. And there was so much media coverage of it because Lance Ito, the judge, decided to allow those cameras into the room so there's endless images and footage and sound of what i kind of imagine like you said it's like the first 9-11 there's just endless you know content and, and photography of it i think content is an interesting word in this case as well because yeah. you're right it is content like the way you know like how every single person involved in the trial or like the case in general went on to like write like three memoirs about it mm-hmm. <laughs> like it, like everyone just like basically mined this tragedy for for content for like media attention yeah so much so that all of the professionals like these normal working people like with the exception of johnny cochran who was the uh, one of the lead prosecutors on oj's or sorry one of the lead defense attorneys for oj um aside from like him and um you know, Robert Kardashian, most of these people were kind of just, you know, and of course, Robert Shapiro as well, who is like a little bit of a celebrity himself. But like, in total, like most of these people were just like normal working, you know, legal folks. And the idea that all of them became so possessed by the spirit of the media surrounding them, that they ended up like kind of creating their lives around, you know, what happened is very compelling to me. I mean, it's really interesting how, like, Marsha Clark, the lead prosecutor on the case, because um, she, I mean, there, I mean, I don't know if it's true, but in the People versus O.J. Simpson um, season, like, there are all these, like, endless, like, scenes where she's, like, crying to people about how um, she's, like, not a media person, and people are, like, judging her appearance, and she, like, doesn't know how to, like, do her hair, so, um, people are, like, making fun of how her hair, like, looks awful on camera or whatever, like, all these, like, endless, endless scenes, and then she went on to, like, become, like, a novelist, who, like, goes on, like, yeah. <laughs> talk shows to still talk about the case. It's, like, obviously, there's something so addictive about media attention, I mean, we should know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Literally, like... <laughs> I mean, look what we're doing right now. Yeah. It is. I mean, attention is so... Um, addictive. No, it's so addictive. And, I mean, there's something even, like, you know, beyond the the mere, you know, um, you know, atten- attractive quality of attention here. I think there's, you know, something a little more, like, sinister and, like, demonic because it wasn't, you know, just that... Um, you know, they, they were, like, so happy with, like, their media coverage, but it's, like, they were, like, truly, like, touched by some, like, unholy, like, spiritual thing, and I feel like I myself have kind of been touched by it as well, um, not just, like, with the podcast, but, like, when I was on, like, TV with Bob Saget, you know, I started behaving in ways that were, like, really alien and bizarre to me, and... I just, I had no way to stop it. It just, like, came over me, like, some force. And I'm, 
I I really am really desperate to like figure out like exactly like what that is. Like what is this spiritual demon that arrives into reality and then is just capable of completely possessing people and changing the way they behave? That's a good I don't know, that's a good question. But you're right. I mean, when I say attention is addictive, I there is a spiritual component to it as well, right? Because obviously, I mean, it's nice when someone's like paying attention to you, but a lot of the media attention that people were getting at the time wasn't positive, right? So it's not just about like, oh, you know, like people are being nice to me and it's addictive when people are nice to you. So like now I go on talk shows and talk about things and people will be nice to me again. Like it was very dark. Like people like get addicted to like being like, you know, torn to shreds publicly and not just like in a like psychological, like, I don't know, pain feels good kind of way, but you're right. Like in a spiritual I'm possessed by something now kind of way. Yeah. I think that there's something really sinister like lurking like inside the human consciousness that drives us to cuz I think that all these people kind of imagine that like they were making history. Like they all knew immediately that like what was going on was like something that was like going to go down uh as an extremely important event in American culture. And of course they were right, but I think that there's, like, some drive to prove your existence and when you're intoxicated with the idea that you are cementing your reality and everyone is looking at it and seeing you and you really were alive, like, in this whole vortex, like, it must just be totally intoxicating. No, I mean, for sure. But I think it's funny as well, not to bring up the TV show, not to bring up Brian Murphy again, but there, again, there are endless scenes in, in that season where Marsha Clark is just like talking about how like, oh, we, but we have to convict him because, you know, that will like um, establish like a precedent where, you know, men don't abuse women and like, uh, like domestically abuse women anymore. Like we have to show the world, like this is not okay. Like, you know, like how people like talk about like legal cases like that, where it's like, um, we have to make an example of him. Right. But I think that's just what they told themselves to feel better about what they were doing. Because ultimately what they were doing was tearing apart an American icon for the sake of, just for the sake of doing it. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And something I hadn't really thought about myself because like, um, I think that, that there is like an element of joy for all of the, you know, defense attorneys involved that like they understand implicitly that they are like, um, you know, trying to, in effect, like, completely devastate and disassemble, like, someone who was truly, like, a, a, an American figure. And so they probably felt very powerful in, like, that kind of role that they were in. I mean, right. It's like the, he's like the first victim of cancel culture. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, what's kind of vindicating is that ultimately, like, he's innocent. You know, th- that's the verdict. And um, yeah. despite a really easy case, as everyone says, like, they weren't able to do it. And so it seems to me if the OJ trial is kind of like a, you know, cosmic representation of, like, the human soul on, on this stage, like, it seems that cancel culture inevitably can't win. I mean, of course not. Because at the end of the day, like, it still matters. Like, what, like people are still more compelled by like 
stories of success and fame and money and fortune than they are by someone's pathetic attempts to destroy that. Like, despite, like, our most, like, petty, like, pathetic um, feelings, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, people still want to believe that the American dream is possible. Right. There's kind of, like, a a tragedy there, really, because, you know, of course the the way people probably imagine that this is tragic is like the death of a, a vaguely innocent, you know, young woman. But really it, it's um, that there is a, a hunger out there to desecrate idols and, you know, try to recreate, you know, try to, you know, in place of those idols, like in, in, in destroying them, what they end up doing instead is just, you know, supplanting it with a great nothingness. Right. No, you're right. I mean, it's so funny, though, because obviously, I mean, it's horrible what happened to her, whether or not you think he did it, whether or not you think he abused her or whatever. Like, it's hor- like it's horrible when someone dies, obviously, but it's like, but people die all the time. And, like, every time someone talks about, like, a murder case or a disappearance case or whatever, like, it's never really about the victim. It can't be because the story, like, no one, no one cares no one cares about like the one who gets murdered. No one cares about like the passive victim of an event like that. And it's just like, it's not bad or good. Like it's just the truth and pretending that you care is stupid. Yeah. Because I mean, this idea of justice, like the idea that what you're doing is uh, you're avenging, you know, this woman who had her life taken away from her. It's just, it doesn't ring true to me at all that anyone really thinks that, you know, convicting somebody and, uh, you know, ending their, their life and their iconhood or anything is, like, really, like... I mean, what is the point of justice at all, actually, now that I think about it? Like, what does it do? <laughs> I don't know. Nothing. I mean, it's, it's like, you trying to... Oh, my God. I guess it's, like, you trying to, like, play God, you know? Like, oh, you should... You know, like, the whole, like, oh, you're going to pay for your sins kind of thing. Uh-huh doesn't really but it doesn't really work because i think when you're trying to be the good one and you're trying to make someone pay for something like there's so much ego involved in that as well like all those like persecutors and stuff like they're so like they're complete like narcissists and egomaniacs like it's never about the innocent person who was like raped and murdered it's always about like oh i'm gonna be the one to avenge them you know yeah like the i Vengeance doesn't, like, can't exist for the the victim ever because, you know, of course, like, the victim isn't alive to see any meaningful consequence. So the idea of, you know, justice and vengeance is only enacted by society. And I I think, like, Foucault has, like, touched on this, that it's, like, a way of proliferating and, like, trying to enact, like, care on, um, you know, the, the human spirit in a way that takes these like you know subterranean desires that we all experience and put a specific praxis around it so that those can continue to exist but you know in a a moderated like regulated form but i mean it doesn't seem to work like these things still happen and even though like the wave of like serial killers has as you know we talked about just you know turned into empty meaningless you know mass gun violence which just nobody feels anything about at all i mean yeah. What are we like left with in that void? Our own egos. <laughs> yeah. That's it. And that kind of like is why 
that that kind of goes all the way back around to like fame, right? Like the the fame is basically like the creation of art of a single ego. Like when you're truly famous in a way that, you know, someone like Madonna or Kim Kardashian is or, you know, Nicole Brown Simpson or OJ himself, like when you've like reached that level, you've transcended the limits that surround your mind and you've uh, actually been able to inflict your own being into the entire world. Yeah. No, I mean, that's true, but it's interesting that you mentioned Nicole Brown Simpson in that context as well, because she, I mean, obviously she was married to a rich, famous, powerful man, but she didn't become famous herself until she died. So it's like the Laura Mm -hmm. Palmer thing where the image of you as a person who used to exist, the potential of you is what's famous not you yourself as a person because she wasn't like you know she wasn't like a media personality she's not like chris jenner or whatever she is like the she's like all those photographs that we've all seen she's like you know (laughs) this whatever bloodied up like bruised up uh, mug shots like she's all those things she's an image she's not a real person i mean i guess no one who's really famous is a real person but there's a difference between because i mean obviously madonna is an image too Mm-hmm. But she has a personality behind that image. While as someone who becomes famous after they're already dead, there is, there's only, I mean, I, it just reminds me of something a history teacher of mine once said about like um, JFK, how it's not the president who was that people like mourn all the time, but it's the potential of that, right? It's like the images of his like brain splattered all across um, Jackie Kennedy that people remember. And that's how, people perceive Nicole Brown Simpson too. It's like the, you know, like when people talk about young women who were murdered, it's always like, oh, but you know, she was so young. There was so much she could have still done, but it's never really like that. Like, I mean, most people don't end up doing anything. Do you think it's better to die beautifully and like in flames and violently splattered in blood in front of the entire world and have like your ego like then permanently abed, like embedded in a culture or do you think it's like not worth anything at all I mean not anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> it used to be I think I mean if we were still like we're still living in the 20th century I, I think I would have like killed myself at this point but it's like I mean the 21st century everything is so meaningless like even if you know even if if we kill ourselves now that's not going to mean anything people die all the time there's so many there are too many images for the image to be remembered you know like, now, even when a fa- famous young person dies, that doesn't mean anything. Like, Will Peep or whatever, like, <laughs> who even remembers him? <laughs> you, you know what he got? He got a grime song. Right? He got a fucking I, great, grime great. song. And that's so, that's so sad. You don't, like, now, if even if you die, like, young and beautifully and, you know, with the entire world around you, like, looking at you, it just doesn't mean anything. Like then all you get is a fucking grime song. Right. I mean, you can't, like, you can't even be Kirk Cobain anymore. You can really want it to. The entire art of, of, like, beautiful death is gone. And that is frightening for me because I, I bank so much of my aesthetic sensibilities on Mishima and, like, him, you know believing that he could like really like create himself as art like through his death like that could never happen anymore no it just messed with my eye this is so depressing (laughs) i mean i hate i fucking hate this uh 
this contour and this highlight I got today. I'm, like, so angry. I'm going to literally just import a NYX palette. You should. NYX is low-key so good. Um, I use, like, NYX mascara and um, eyebrow gel, so I'm a huge fan. I, I mean, you know what's really interesting? Mm -hmm. That, um, I mean, we're doing our makeup right now, and obviously, like, I think... Like the whole like makeup boom of the early 2010s was pretty much influenced by the Kardashians, like contouring, like when just like random, like, like young straight girls started contouring all the time. Yeah. Like that was, uh, that was the Kardashian thing. It was. <laughs> and in turn, that's like a, that's like a Nicole Brown Simpson thing. Like it all like began with like that, you know, Twin Peaks Judy seed that was like laid with her death. And then all we have, then it, what it spirals out into is like a bunch of like, you know, white, you know, teenagers in Colorado or whatever, like cracking up their face like a drag queen. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, it's interesting that you mentioned that actually, because um, when I was like doing research for this episode, I just watched a bunch of like home videos of Nicole Brown Simpson that are on YouTube. Mm -hmm. There's this one that like, where she's like doing her makeup in, in the mirror. And someone's yeah. like filming her from behind and she's like curling her eyelashes. And she looks like she has like a ton of makeup on. <laughs> uh huh. It's just, uh. Well, cause I mean, she it's was always so beautiful, you know, she was like almost like beautiful in an anti-feminine way like she kind of looks a little mannish in in some ways like she, she does yeah and so when i see those pictures of her with like her really like strong face like her beauty is like quite you know masculine and i can absolutely see how like you know kim and like courtney would be like growing up like looking at her and like having her idealized as like the perfect brentwood mom that their own mother was you know so keen on and so infatuated with and so endlessly overstating of her beauty like that eventually like that would like seep into their subconsciousness and now it's spidered out in some frightening like tentacle web into the brains of you know <laughs> of girls in high school <laughs> no it's true it's true yeah i mean she kind of looked like she kind of looked like a early 90s supermodel you know like very mm -hmm. sort of almost repelling looking but in yeah. a but in a hot way which I think all hot people have something really ugly about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've always felt that. And that the, you know, femininity is most beautiful when it includes, a, you know, a moment of masculinity as well. Which, you know, I have to assert so I can, you know, keep attracting chasers and, and straight guys. But I, I have to make that argument philosophically <laughs> on a philosophical level. But uh, in any case, like, Nicole was just, like, so... She really did have, like, that mannish element. Like, you, it's really there. No, that's really, that's really true. You know, it was really interesting as well. Like, um, I was watching all these videos on YouTube yesterday and apparently like after, after he was acquitted, like, cause he, he stayed, like he lived in the same house still and people started doing like, um, like true crime LA, um, tours and the tour bus would like stop by his house. People, like, go around, like, look at it, like, oh, this is where O.T. Simpson lives. And he, you know, was, uh, whatever, involved in the murder trial. And this one uh, girl who was 19 at the time, uh, like, ended up meeting, like, she was on that tour and she ended up meeting him by his house. And they ended up dating for 13 years. And the whole time, and she was, like, a drug addict and stuff. And the whole time, he would, like, make her dress and style her hair. And she was, you know, like, blonde and blue-eyed, too. And he would, like, make her dress like Nicole, like compare her to Nicole all the time and it's just so <laughs> funny. <laughs> yeah. I can I can see like 
I'm really interested in, like, post, like, you know, post-prison OJ, because he seems, you know, very unhinged in a, in a really interesting way, like, his Twitter presence and, like, um, like, him, like, tweeting about, like, transgender people in sports, like, okay, bizarre. And I, I love the idea of him just, like, endlessly, like, in these, like, Brentwood houses, like, forever, like, infatuated with, like, Caucasian girls with blue eyes and just, like, floating through life that way. It's like, he's like a ghost of the past that's still alive. Right. I mean, it's a very, like, 80s, early 90s female ideal, right? Like, totally. Redwood housewife. I also am, like, having a hard time with my eyebrows tonight. Do you use, like, eyebrow gel, or, like, what do you use for your eyebrows? I use, yeah, I just use an eyebrow gel um, by NYX. So. <laughs> how, do, how, do, how do we do this? It's like, uh, <laughs> can you see it? I can. Oh, I know, I know that product. I'm using a Maybelline New York eyeshadow palette for my eyebrows. Using eyeshadow for your brows is demented, but I already have very full masculine brows, as uh, many haters have pointed out to me in the past. Screw you, bitches. I look more like Nicole than you ever will. That's true, though. But I wonder what the haters are going to say about this. I mean, this is demented, but, like, the thing is, is that, like, you can't, like, talk about this in a way that, like, doesn't evoke the absurd because what really happened was, like, a whole bunch of Americans got so worked up over this that, like, it ended up completely, like, shaping the way that we, like, view and think of fame. And it's all really ridiculous when you, you know, boil it down to, the like, the basics or, or what have you. And um, to imagine it in a way more serious, I think, would be, like, disrespectful to the reality of what actually happened. Right. I mean, no, it's that's that's true. <laughs> it's <laughs> very like, true. I mean, it, nothing happened, right? I mean, uh, sure, a person got murdered. Two people got murdered. It's horrible. But that happens all the time, and they were maybe potentially murdered by someone very famous. But that, I mean, I guess maybe that happens all the time too, if you believe the conspiracy theories. Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, who cares? I mean. But see, that, it's good, though, that people care, because now we don't even have to experience, like, we don't even get to experience that anymore, and now no one cares about anything, truly, so. Yeah, because it's very, it's very foreign and weird to imagine everybody getting so, you know, thoughtful, and, you know, so, spending so much of their daily life, like, watching this stuff on TV, because I don't know if there's any famous person, even, like, a famous person who died, that could possibly capture the American consciousness, like, so so completely it feels like a totally lost cause i mean even if kim kardashian like murdered kanye west tomorrow like we'd be we care about it for a week no seriously i mean i hope she does it'll it'll be a fun (laughs) week of twitter but then after that nothing yeah that that would be it that would be it now I have to do my eyeshadow, which is the the biggest moment of, of this makeup look. For how long have we been doing this? Uh, we've been going been... for... We're approaching an hour here very quickly. Ooh, but is your eyeshadow going to take you a long time? No, my eyeshadow doesn't usually take that long, but I also have to put on lashes and my lipstick still. Oh, I see. I have, like, glitter all over my hands. Um, I'm, like, almost done with my eyeshadow look. And then, what do you do for lipstick? 
I'm doing lip gloss. <laughs> <laughs> just a just a light lip gloss. I love it. <laughs> I mean, it's not very light. It's very '90s, actually. Oh yeah, um, it's like like thick and gloopy. Yeah, exactly. It's very uh, it's very Breadwood Housewife. I don't have. Oh no, what is it called? I can't see the shape name anymore. Oh, that's sad. I feel like I should do my eyeliner, but I would probably mess it up right now, to be honest. Mess it up. I mean, you know. I'm sure Nicole had a few nights of bad eyeliner. I mean, who doesn't? But I, like, made a reputation for myself that I can... Like, I, I don't know. I've been tweeting so much about, like, doing my eyeliner. I'm always like, I can do it in my sleep, but that's not true. I can't do it right now. <laughs> I Eyeliner always paralyzes me with fear. And every time I have fucked it up, it's been, like, apocalyptic levels of disaster. I mean, it's usually the case. It's either, like, perfect or <laughs> you're screwed. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, I'm, like, trying to put this into my waterline. Um, this low-key looks so good on camera, but it does not look good in the mirror oh, at it's all. Ex- I mean, the same thing is happening to me, and I couldn't even venture to say that it looks good on, on camera for me either. But the, the thing about drag makeup is especially for me until every piece is there it just like doesn't it's it's like not right you know until until it's like all done yeah no that's that's so true i like put on like glitter i don't even know glitter eye gel eyeliner thing and it like now makes it really hard for me to blend my eyeshadow anymore Uh uh-huh disastrous but whatever going out to dinner after this so uh, this, this has to be good Wait, are you wearing the makeup that like you're doing right now to dinner tonight probably i, I mean it's gonna be more disastrous if i try to take it off <laughs> can you imagine <laughs> um i'll probably look like a raccoon by the end of the night but that's okay Oh, God. I mean, I'm literally... Once we're done with this, I'm gonna, like, make my boyfriend take some pictures of me, and then I am, like, wiping it off. And, like, that's it. <laughs> I'm just trying to see if my under eye... I haven't done, like, this much eyeshadow in a really long time. Like, I used to do, like, eyeliner, eyeshadow. Like, I used to, like put a lot of thought into my eye makeup all the uh-huh. time before COVID and then COVID happened. And now most of the days, like I just wear like red lipstick. Like I don't even put makeup on anymore. Do you feel sad about that? I do, but the red lipstick makes it okay, I guess. It's yep. still like a semi put together look, just not that put together. I'm trying to think of more things I wanted to say about OJ and and Nicole and all of that, um, I just, the reason I think I was, like, so attracted to the whole media circus around it is because, like, the way that, like, fame existed in that moment seems, like, both, like, really, like, disgusting and horrific and cruel, um, and the entire media circus around it just seems so abject, but at the same time, there is, like, something, like, really, like, beautiful and kind of, like, pure about, about it, and... I, you know, I'm thinking about the way that it started to, like, 
change and, and shift culture and like how fame exists now I just like feel like so much of it like really like started in that precise moment we've been like living in you know the remnants of it ever since but you know what I think it's kind of pure in a way sorry I just got a message anyway um you know what I think it's kind of pure in a way it's because it's so like I mean it's demonic <laughs> uh-huh. but it's like human too right like it's it's tied with human emotions and jealousy and rage and passion and you know obsession like like all these like you know stories that would come out about OJ being like completely obsessed with Nicole and like stalking her and stuff and in his book um, he kind of flips it and says that actually she was the one who was obsessed with me and like begged me to get back together with her and stuff which I mean I don't think those two things are like mutually exclusive that could have also happened the truth is is always somewhere in the middle that's true yeah I think they were just like obsessed with each other i mean good for them not everyone gets to experience that kind of love yeah violence aside but like i think but that's human right like it's we can understand that and we're attracted to things like that because it's almost like a great tragedy but now fame and everything that has to do with it like all these like news cycles and stuff are so inhuman like it's algorithmically generated like it's you know based on like technology and AI and all these things that we're like simply cannot understand like the human brain is like not meant to understand it we're being like fed all this information that feels completely like abject without ever really processing it and I think that's why this story feels so almost innocent in the way that people still looked at other people at the time yeah and i mean the scale is like you know quite small when you really think about it because i mean the the people who became the major players in this there's not that many of them i mean you can probably name them all it's like johnny cochran marcia clark oj simpson lance ito um to a degree robert shapiro and it's like it's such a small cast who had their entire lives like so fundamentally moved in a way that like came from something you know quite not that difficult to you know comprehend whereas now like you said like what we get instead is just like endless fucking data and it's like all of our celebrities and like what we end up like you know finding compelling or fascinating like all of it just comes from like an algorithm that spits crap out at us all the time yeah exactly so it's just i don't know it's so sad and depressing (laughs) Isn't it sad? But also, that, like, like, can you imagine like telling someone like wh- like who had like you know lived through the media circus of like the OJ trial and being like, wow, that sounds so nice. <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, they must realize it though. Like someone like Chris Jenner, right, who lived through it back then and is now living through whatever this is now. She must realize how weird things are now and how different it is. I think Chris especially knows, because I've always found that there's, like, a layer of, like, tragedy to her, uh, especially, like, on the Kardashians after her and and FKA Bruce Jenner, like, break up. Like, I've always found, like, their, you know, their spirit on the show together to be something really sad, and I feel like she is, like, a kind of, like, a mourning idol and uh, someone who you can, like, really easily, like, pin a lot of this to. I can see that actually. I watched this clip um, from Keeping Up with the Kardashians where she's at like a restaurant with Faye Resnick, 
uh-huh. like the other major player in this case, Nicole's uh, cokehead friend, <laughs> um, who wrote a book about their little escapade. But she, um, they're like sitting in this restaurant and they're talking about Nicole and they're talking about um, like how the case affected them, how that must feel like and stuff. And it's just, and she just looks so like sad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Faye Resnick is, like, a really... Because she also did the whole media circus thing with it. And, like, she, like, wrote that, like, terrible, terrible book that just, like... Oh, my God. Actually, she was Laura Palmer. She was such a dirty girl, you know. And for her to, like, kind of, like, you know, buy into it in that way has always felt really heartbreaking to me. I mean, that's what people... That's what people do. Yeah. But she couldn't get any... She didn't get anything out of it. Like, I mean... I don't think most people rec- like recognize her name with the case these days anymore. Like, every, you know, Marsha Clark got everything she ever wanted and more, uh, whether she knew it or not that she wanted it. But, like, Faye Resnick just, like, wrote that, like, sad book, like, demeaned herself about who she alleged to be such a good friend, and, like, now what? Now she gets to be on Keeping Up With the Kardashians once or twice. Wasn't she, like, on um, Real Housewives as well? I am not that familiar with Real Housewives, but, you know, it sounds like she would kind of be, like, the, the person who would who would be on it, so. I mean, honestly, I mean, I don't know. I just, I said this in the beginning, but I really find the whole, like, L.A. Brentwood early 90s scene just, like, really fascinating. I don't know if you've ever read um, You'll Never Make Love in This Town Again. I haven't. Oh my god, I just like choked on coffee. <laughs> um wait, <laughs> it's like this book that was <clears throat> mm, great. <laughs> <laughs> We're just talking about dying young. It'd be funny if I like died right now. But um I um it's basically about it was written by um this journalist and like three um, escorts slash sex workers slash elite prostitutes in the LA area. Mm-hmm. And it's about their like celebrity encounters and, you know, sex work in the late 80s, early 90s and stuff. And um, Heidi Flies, I think I'm mispronouncing her name, but she was basically like, um, like, a, like, a, what do you call them? Like, a madam who um like arranged all these like escort um, oh she was like blackie yeah exactly she was like blackie <laughs> but for the hollywood elites right and there are all these like there are all these like descriptions uh, in the book of um these like 20 year old girls having sex with like jack nicholson <laughs> um Oh, it's, um... What's nice about that is that it feels like, uh, Hollywood actually had something sexual about it, and, like, now there's obviously nothing. Yeah, that's true. Maybe... Am I supposed to, like, is it... Maybe it, like, should not, like, feel that way? (laughs) I'm wondering if I shouldn't, but... No, I mean, you're right, though, because it's, like, the whole, like, um, Paul Schrader... American gigolo, like, sex, drugs, and 
whatever olives that uh-huh. doesn't, doesn't really exist anymore. Isn't it funny to imagine, like, L.A. is, like, a scuzzy place that, like, you go to, like, where, like, like deep, like, downtown L.A. where, like, bad things are happening? Like, I, like, literally, like, can't even picture that. I just, like, imagine, like, soulless, like, Instagram death, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's really interesting that, like, L.A. became, like, the hub of all these, like, influencers and hype houses and TikTok stars and, you know, like, the idea, I mean, I think it's it's always been the place where people go to be famous, but the way fame is now has also transformed the city so much. Yeah. Like fame started to take like a a physical aspect into the, the very like, you know, geographical quality of the city itself. And it makes sense that like all this kind of spirals out of like what happened with, um, you know, with Nicole where like, her Brentwood dreams, like, suddenly, like, expiring so fabulously and, like, detonating and her suddenly becoming, becoming the most, like, famous woman in the world, like, it all makes sense that, like, it would end up, like, repeating itself in these feedback loops until it's TikTok hype houses, which I, like, can't even, like, perceive. What is, like, what is it? I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to, I mean, I guess I would want to know just for, like, sociological like research purposes but i don't really understand i mean it's like it's kind of like warhol's factory like but like (laughs) it's warhol's factory but with like with nothing (laughs) it's like it's like a it's warhol's factory if it was like staged in like dante's like purgatorio yeah basically with none of the none of the sleaze and none of the sex appeal literally just like the (laughs) Endless, like fame hungry, talentless monsters. It's pretty out like incredible to me. I think that like fame like went from something that was like a life or death, like life defining creation of yourself, like in the public eye, and like now it's like the way that you create fame is like in ten second clips that are repeated endlessly. Yeah. Who's, like, who's like who's famous right now? Charlie D'Amelio. See, and it's because it all like the people who are like you know previous like pe- like fallout of famous people like Kim Kardashian and like you know music celebrities from the past like they're famous in a way that it's like they are like famous as a remnant, but they're not actually like they're not like famous in the way like Charlie D'Amelio is or something now. Do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, because I mean Charlie D'Amelio is famous like for zoomers right like the like the new generations i mean people still care about the kardashians but as you said like yeah as a remnant of like old fame and old old i don't know old hollywood almost yeah it's like she's like kim kardashian's like almost like famous in the way that like marilyn monroe is or something yeah totally it's very like um well, Bryce Snell is like talks about like the pre-empire, post-empire, like Hollywood slash cultural division, and she's very like empire kind of famous, you know. I just fucked up my eyeliner in such a big way; it's like incredibly bad. Oh no, I can't see it though. So I know it's good. Is it, <laughs> there's a there's always a I'm chance wearing... to redeem it, which is by adding more. My boyfriend is That's literally true. laughing at me because of how badly I fucked it up. So fucking cool. <laughs> like a glass at the wall, I am so shattered.
together unearthed the mystery of Nicole Nicole Brown Simpson and OJ <laughs> together and this has been an important mission for me on the show because I have felt for a long time that it engendered something quite horrifying and, and toxic in pop culture as well as something beautiful and something that has endlessly compelled me and so now having seen kind of the birth of it i want to talk about the absolute end all of it which is with natalie portman in the brady colbert feature from i think 2019 2018 vox lux 2018 yeah yeah so tell me about your experience with this movie a little bit yana um Okay, so, well, first of all, I would just like to say that I think that movie is genuinely a masterpiece that everyone's yeah. leaving on. I think that movie is perfect. Um, it's like if someone took all the contents of my brain and, like, made a movie out of it. That's, what, that's the way I think about Vox Lux. I agree. Um, but it's, I watched it for the first time in 2019. 
uh, when I was studying for my end of school exams and it was the first movie I'd watched in like literally months because I was just like studying all the time and I watched that film and it starts with a school shooting scene so I was like <laughs> wow <laughs> I was like wow this is so inspirational um and I I mean I've talked a lot about my thing uh with Columbine so I don't think I'm going to mention it again but basically I have a thing for school shootings I think they're fascinating I think um they say a lot about how we think about violence and terrorism and uh, fame. So from like literally the first seconds of the film, I was like, this is, this is going to be like the best movie I've ever seen. And it kind of was. No, I've been thinking about this as well because um, when I first saw the movie, I was also instantly compelled that a recent feature had the gall to depict a school shooting in, you know, such glorious detail because I think American Horror Story was kind of like the last fire of, you know, depictions of school shootings. And recently I've talked about, you know, Elephant and everything. But I was immediately fascinated by this, you know, not a big budget movie, but, you know, lots of A-listers uh, coming together to say something about fame and do it in a really violent and gratuitous fashion. And so even before seeing the movie, I was very, you know, intrigued about what kind of provocation they were going to be attempting here. And the fact that the movie is both completely artful and uh, frightening in ways that you can't even imagine and appalling and dreadful to watch and also so impulsively true on this, like, horrible level, I just find that this is one of, like, the best, like, recent, like, provocations and uh, one of my, my favorite movies in recent memory. So I completely feel your, like, libidinal attraction to this movie. No, for sure, because I think that, well, as you said, I, it's very surprising that they have the balls to do it because we don't really, I mean, we don't really talk about, obviously there's a lot of violence in movies, but the way violence is depicted in movies now, it's not, it's either, there, there's a lot of like crimes of passion and things like that, but this like senseless violence that can only be produced by like terrorism is never really talked about. Mm. You know, it's the kind of violence that, like, Crash is about. Like, right. violence that's tied to, you know, like, sexuality, and it's tied to, like, very primitive human desires. That doesn't... It's not really talked about in that way. No, I know. And, I, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to revisit this with you now is because I, I feel like when we did our terrorism episode together, like, we, like, uncovered something that we both, like, find in common, which is, like, an artfulness in these mass events that can touch all of humanity. And as that's become, you know, more, like, moribund and, like, less fascinating and less, like, viscerally awakening in all of us, um, I was really surprised to see that, like, Vox Lux treats, like, that mass violence with, like, the same awareness, which is that once, like, school shootings and, like, these horrifying events of culture used to really be able to move us, and now all we have is, like, a blankness. And um, the Natalie Portman character as Celeste is just the most fantastic embodiment of that idea I've ever seen. That's so true. It's it's actually interesting that the movie, like, because there are two, um, well, there are three mass violence events that the movie focus on, focuses on, right? Like, the first one being a school shooting that Celeste survives. 
the second one being 9-11 when she's on a rise to fame right and the third one being that weird senseless like shooting on like a beach in like croatia or something yeah and with every single one of those events she becomes less and less human yeah. <laughs> to the point where like the last shooting happens and she's just like oh do we have anything to do with that like what are we gonna you know yeah what, it's what, like, are we, what, what are we gonna do with that yeah this film which depicts natalie portman and um god what, what's the name of the younger actress Oh my god, uh, Raffi yeah. Cassidy. Yeah, Raffi Cassidy, Cassidy, who I don't know from anything else, but she's really fabulous in this. And it begins with the school shooting, as we've mentioned, and it tracks her development as a school shooting victim to, like, a pop superstar. And as it does that, it follows kind of the trajectory and course of American history uh, in the contemporary moment and an encroaching dread of vapidity that becomes... Uh, more and more sinister as it goes on. And like you said, one of the ways that that is most true is like in the very beginning of the film, like the mass shooting is like so pulverizing and takes like 45 minutes to recover from. Like we see these like really long, tense scenes of her going through therapy and like worrying about her spinal injury. And then 9-11 has like a, a gravity, like a, a shocking like gravity to it when it does happen. But by the very end when it's just this random shooting in Croatia or whatever, it, like, means nothing. And I just couldn't, you know, believe that it was so right about that. And I've never seen, uh, you know, anything except Glamorama, like we talked about, like, see mass violence in that, like, empty, callous way. It's really interesting because, like, in the beginning, when, um, as, you know, she's recovering from her injury, the whole community is, like, recovering from the shooting, right? And they have this, like, little um, funeral service at the at the church. And she sings her song, the one that makes her famous. Mm. And the narration, William Defoe's narrating the movie, which is also <laughs> incredible because I think he's, like, one of the hottest voices ever. Yeah. He, um, he the narration, like, there's basically it says something like, um, you know, when, she, when the, when the song came out, um, as, as a, as a record, they changed the I to E to like represent like a communal experience of this pain. And suddenly her pain because became everybody else's pain and her suffering, her mourning became everyone else's. So they were going through it as a community. They were going through it as like, you know, the American public mm. like, through this like Columbine-esque shooting. And then when 9-11 happens, I mean, we can see that she's very upset by her reaction, but then it cuts right away to her music video. So it's like, she's kind of learning to channel that pain into her art, but in a very... In the wrong grotesque, way. Yeah, yeah. In a very, like, abject way. Yeah, because that video of her, which is, you know, would never be something that would come out in 2001, of, like, her in that, like, really vogue, like, glitter mask... And she's, like, riding on the back of a a motorcycle and doing, like, pastel dance routines. It's, like, you can see kind of, like, the stress that she, like, there's a great lyric in that song where she's, like, I felt, like, the weight of human history or something. And it's, like, her in a bondage getup just, like, thrashing awkwardly around. And, like, it's very, like, Mariah Carey glitter, which has all of those wonderful, like, posters that are up with the Twin Towers, like, burning behind them. And you just see, like these like failures of people like reaching for you know trying to feel something about this mass event and then ultimately failing which i think is the first time you know in american history 9-11 where that happened 
Right. And I think there's a really interesting, like, symbolic connection between that and her relationship with her sister, right? Because the, the morning that 9-11 happens is the morning that she discovers her sister in bed with a producer, played by Jude Law. Right. And, again, the narration, like, comes in and it's, like, of the two sisters, like, drifted drifted apart, just, just like the Twin Towers did. So, like, the Twin Towers fell and the two sisters, like, their relationship was destroyed by that event as well. Yeah, so because, like, like, the initial depiction of, of Celeste, as played by Rafferty Cassidy, like, she... Rafferty Cassidy. I'm never going to remember that girl's <laughs> <Right>. name. <laughs> I think it's Raffy. Um. <laughs> but no, like, she's, like, is very blank, and her performance is, like, so empty and vulnerable, and, like, it's, like, just a large, like, gap that is, like, slowly filled in with information. And, like, in the initial, like, stretch of it, when it's, like, just, like, her, like, reacting even to the shooting that's happening right before her, like, through her therapy as, like, she's, like, partying in Stockholm and all of this, like, she just has, like, that, like, innocent, empty gaze the whole time. Right, but I think, you know, um, when the movie begins as well, like, the narration is, like, just such an important part of it, because, well, when the movie first begins, they talk about how you know, before Celeste was ever, like, a, you know, a cultural figure, before her name was, like, known to all, she was just, like, a kid, like, you know, doing her little dance routines in her parents' living room. Mm. Um, There's this whole thing that he says about how she was really a very, like, savvy businesswoman. Mm. And in moments, like, in the beginning of the film, where Celeste is still played by Rafi Cassidy, not Natalie Portman, where she is the one who's kind of doing all the business transactions. Like, even when they're in the hospital with her sister, and there's somebody who wants to, like, um, interview her for like some like talk show or whatever and she's like i don't look too good like you go do it like she's already like pushing people around she's basically already trying to make her career happen before she ever sings the song before like before she ever becomes famous as an image right because she's so like devoid of any feeling (laughs) no it's exactly true it's like and that is really kind of like the 90s american like mindset like leading up to the like new millennium it was just like this um like, sort of acceptance of everything as uh, both not good and good, and there was, like, this kind of indifference. And even when I think about Hole and, like, Nirvana, you know, some of, like, the defining music of that era, it's, you know, a lot of it is, like, you know, angsty and upset, but I've always felt that there was, like, kind of, like, a nihilist abyss and, like, something, like, indifferent about the whole era, and it, like, really shows in that, like, blink, open-eyed performance that she gives. No, totally. I mean, it's like the whole um, my so-called life, like grunge <laughs> nihilism. Right. Such a big part of like Gen X. Like it makes me think of that. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Um, those things on Twitter, but it's like you know how the like Coca Cola try to like produce a soft drink for the Gen X generation, and it was like a white like can with oh, the, like yeah. um, like angsty Daria like like cartoon characters yeah. and stuff. And it was, like, all about how, like, Gen X is, like, the, the nihilistic generation. And I think it really, I mean, I think it really was. I mean, MTV and, like, you know, that was, I mean, what's interesting about the movie as well is that, like, the shooting in the beginning of the film is supposed to be, like, Columbine, right? Like, it's supposed right. to be, like, the same, it's supposed to have the same weight as Columbine did. So it's, like, again, and the fact that it happens in 1999, like, right at the end of the decade before the start of the new millennium, it's, like, it's really, yeah, I don't know. And it's perfect. It produces hers as, it's perfect. Yeah, and it like produces hers as like cultural figure who is about to like. I mean, what do you think about the ending? Like the whole like reveal at the end because I well, think it's really important. Yeah, because like the big like <laughs> plot twist is that like she made an agreement with Satan. 
Yeah. <laughs> like, she agreed with Satan to, like, sell her soul, basically, to, like, become famous. And every time that reveal comes in, it always, like, strikes me again, because um, it feels, like, not real. And, you know, like, it, it seems impossible, but also, like, kind of inevitable. And when Willem Dafoe, like tritely reveals this information over the performance it's like i i don't know i've never been able to completely grasp it but it does feel right like i feel like um the satanic agreement that america made which is you know basically celeste is just like a stand-in for like the national mood like the agreement was like to continue on in the face of this horrible tragedy that happened 9-11 and school shootings and like violence as a everyday part of the American experience. It's like a handshake with that, that that will continue to happen, but you feel nothing. Right. No, exactly. And I mean, I think, I mean, obviously it's like a metaphor for fame as well, right? Like when you, when you agree to be famous, it's kind of like you're selling your soul. As in like, I think that's an old fashioned view of fame though, because I think in the past people realized that when you become a celebrity, you sacrifice something, mm. right? And it's your privacy, it's literally your soul. You like stop being a normal human being, you become part of, you know, of the public, of the public's imagination. It's like the whole Madonna thing where, you know, um, I don't know if you've ever seen that interview, but she, it's an interview with Oprah where she talks about how like, what else was I supposed to be with a name like Madonna? Like <laughs> I, I, I knew exactly what I was doing, like with my life to achieve that kind of fame. Yeah. And people used to realize that, like, you know, that fame is a sacrifice and stuff. And to be that important in cultural history means something. Well, as I think now it's very different. I mean, no one wants to sacrifice anything anymore. Mm. People might still sell their souls, but it's, they don't expect <laughs> like actually have any consequences from that yeah and i don't even think you know i think selling your soul is just like an everyday part of american life now which is like why it makes sense that they like do that uh like kind of like final like you know stab at the end of the movie with uh, the revelation that she made that deal with satan because i feel like just to engage with you know life at all at this point is to you know in, in some effect you know agree with satan to continue on like life is in the melancholia way, it's unethical. It's it's irresponsible to be alive, and being a human being on this planet means, like, catastrophe for almost everything. But if you agree to, you know, engage with the pleasures of Earth and agree with Satan or, like, whatever force is out there to engage in, like, whatever you have offered here on this planet, like, there there is something, like, beautiful that, like, remains. It's really interesting because I was, when I was watching like the final performance on YouTube, um, there were a lot of comments like under the video being like, oh, I don't understand why the the movie ends with that song. Like it's like a, you know, it's like a happy like pop song. I think mm-hmm. it's called EKG instead of the, um, instead of like the, the, the funeral song. Right. And it's like, I mean, it makes so much sense that it does though, because it's like, I mean, what else is there to do to live besides like dance to a happy song? Like, okay, she sold her soul to the devil. Like, so what? Like, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, like it, it kind of reminds me of like the whole like eyes wide shut, uh, eyes wide shut ending scene where Nicole Kidman just like turns to, um, Oh my God, what's his name? Tom Cruise. And she's like, um, and she's like, you know, do you want to, do you want to go home and have sex? Because I mean, what else is there to do, but like have sex and dance and like, just 
try to like enjoy life while you can. Yeah. And even her sister, like the one who knows that she sold her soul to the devil, is also like dancing to that ending song. It's like, okay, like what else are we gonna do? Yeah, Dad, everybody like... is moved in that scene. Like in her daughter who's like totally despondent and like can't communicate with her. Like they're all like touched and moved by it because like this is honestly really one of the driving forces behind, like, people who are unsatisfied is that, like, they become so preoccupied with the sins of being alive, like, the sins of their country and the sins of the capitalism, like, whatever else they imagine, that they can't just, like, embrace the abject and the sublime around them and, you know, spend their lives, like, in, engaging in, like, these pleasures that are real. And so when you kind of get that moment of... of her being so stupid and joyous with that song and like everybody like feeling it at the same time it's like it it really gives the movie like a surprisingly like positive like touch at the end for something that is like really oppressively bleak throughout the rest of the runtime right i mean i guess the thesis of, of the movie is kind of that like yeah life is hopeless like you know, there's violence and terrorism and every every year it means less and less. But it's like, at the end of the day, you're still alive. Because because I think the interesting thing is also like, sure, she sold her soul for fame and fortune, but she kind of sold her soul to stay alive. Because, mm-hmm. like, she met with Satan, she met with the devil, like, and, and you know, in that, in that space between life and death when she was shot by, like, her classmate. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, she she could have she could have said no, she could have died, but then what's the point? Yeah, and I mean the kind of reveal there is so genius because you really do hate Natalie Portman and it's really genius casting because I find her to be generally quite shrill and unlikable and yeah. to see her in a performance <laughs> where she is the most shrill and the most unlikable and is like screeching in this like fake Staten Island accent that's so heavy handed. Like it is, <laughs> she's deplorable. Like I fucking hate her through every one of her scenes, even though I'm like riveted in a camp aspect. So to then like kind of like reveal like this is like the fallout of the, of this contract and it can still mean something worthwhile. I find that to be endlessly beautiful. It is. I mean, I you know that scene where she's having like a press conference and they ask her about the events in Croatia or wherever. Uh huh. Um, and she's like, "Wait, I wrote this down. I have my little, I have my little notes." But she says something like, um, "Oh no, where is it?" Um, okay, never mind. But she says something along the lines of like, um, "If I had one thing to say to those terrorists, I'd say that you know, when I was young and innocent, like I used to believe in God too, but." If they want to, but if they grow up and they want to believe in something else, they can believe in me. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like exactly what fame is all about, exactly what celebrity is all about. Like, you know, I mean, I think, I mean, it's a cliche thing to say, but, you know, famous people are like icons. Like, we worship them, we've created our own idols, and that's a little demonic but it's kind of beautiful well yeah because i mean like we basically all suffered the death of god like nietzsche wrote this as well but it's like culture collectively realized that like religion was not going to be like sustainable for us like in the face of industrialization when we have immediate access to everything and it's only getting it's it's only become like more abstract as time goes on and like the introduction of the internet like all human struggle that you know 
sort of asks for the requirement of God, like the way that people used to actually have to fight to live, like they needed God. And I think we still do need holiness and deities around us, but because of the ease of life and the constant barrage of information, it makes sense that we, you know, create idols and deities out of other people. No, I mean, for sure. Definitely. And I think there's another moment that's really interesting where she's sitting at the diner with her daughter and there's, they're like trying to have a conversation. Her daughter's trying to have a conversation with her and she's just right. like saying random things. <laughs> like Lila literally have like no, uh, that make absolutely no sense. And she's talking about how like, you know, like now there's no money in music and like the only, the only, the only way that she can survive and like pay all these people is by doing all these like constant ads. Yeah. And she's talking about how, like, you know, I, I think I, I think I realized that every year my videos get worse and worse, but they're doing better and better. And like, I just did this ad where I'm like a, like a little a fairy coming out of a flower, out of a CGI rose petal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's like, I thought this was gonna ruin me, but everyone loved it. And she's like, you know, she's like trying to understand how her own image as a celebrity and as a famous person has changed drastically. Right. The introduction of like the internet and like the concept of content. Right. Mm -hmm. And she, it's, it's just, I don't know. I mean, immediately makes me think of Madonna and her recent transformations and to like the BBL, (laughs) like laying under the bed monster. Yeah, no, I mean, like, Madonna and, like, her Madam X era where she is just, like, clinically insane and, like, malfunctioning and, like, enacting, like, all of her political ideas on this stage. It's, like, I think she's a genius for releasing Madam X and, like, the holy, like, the entirely, like, fucked up, like, version that it exists in. That it just shows her whole personality in visceral detail. And, like, her and Celeste have a lot in common, which is that, like... They both are defining stars who become so famous that they do become, like, these, like, deities and definers of pop culture underneath them. And, of course, like, when you're tasked with such a role, you, like, crack and tremble and, like, start using, like, racial slurs as, like, Celeste does, apparently. There's, like, a great line about how she, like, (laughs) drunkenly, like, rams someone with her car and, like, gets out and calls them, like, the N-word or something. (laughs) It's, like... Yeah. Of course, like, someone who's, like, tasked with being, like, God to the world would end up, like, when they're merely human, would end up, you know, behaving on such a catastrophic level. No, absolutely. But I think Madonna is interesting because she lasted for such a long time. I mean, she was normal for such a long time, uh-huh. right? I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Truth or Dare, like the oh, documentary. Oh, yes. I the... love Truth or Dare. Right? And she she's still kind of, I mean, she seems so together in that still. Like, there are all these, you know, like, there's, like, warm baby, like, running around being like, this is insane. Like, why are you doing this? And she's yeah. like, you know, like, I'm making this. I'm I'm the first to do this. Like, I'm making this for the public. But then, like, even she cracked now. <laughs> so, like... Well, I think so, Ma- like, Madonna cracking, right, is, like... I think Madonna's crack is, like, actually, like... I don't, I don't know how quite how to say this, but, um... Oh, one sec. <clears throat> I don't know quite how to say this, but, like, I think that Madonna cracking and, like, her total, like, malfunction is, like actually like the most like riveting move she could have made as like a pop icon because like now every you know celebrity like has uh a endlessly like boring like pre-written like algorithm like friendly um you know 
approach to how, like, they present themselves in their art. Meanwhile, like, Madonna is just, like, shitting and farting all over, like, the timeline and, like, being so inappropriate. And the fact that no one is stopping her or censoring her, like, makes her, like, totally riveting to me. But, I mean, she, by this point, is completely uncontrollable. She's too big for anyone to mm-hmm. do anything about. And it's the same thing with Celeste and Vox Lux. Like, they're all these, you know, like, all these... Pre- I think there's this one line that she says, too, where she, like, turns to her manager, played by Ju Law, <laughs> and she's like, um, like, all everyone we used to work for works for us now. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> so, like, there's there's no one to stop her because they all work for her. Like, she is a self-made icon there's nothing you can say to that and it's truly incredible watching her pull off that concert because um as we see in the one day of life it depicts in the contemporary era where she is on so many drugs drunk and like literally fucked by her manager and seeing her like panic and crack and then be able to get on stage is is truly like suspenseful intense Right. You know what I find really interesting about the concert um, is that it kind of looks so bad. Like, oh, it looks horrible. Be, <laughs> she's supposed to be like the biggest star in the world. Oh, yeah. The, and it's I mean, the choreography. It's just awful. But it's like, but I think it's, I mean, obviously it's meant to be that way. But what I'm trying to say is that I think anything that up close would look horrible yeah like you know when you watch truth or dare and you watch the blonde ambition performances like recorded they also look kind of bad you're like i know this is like the biggest tour to ever take place but like it looks kind of shit because it's so up close like you can't appreciate anything when you're literally standing right next to it yeah no i i i love how fucking bad that extended concert scene goes it it just the dancing is terrible. The costumes are ugly. The makeup is horrific. And, like, um, finding out that Natalie Portman's husband did the choreography is, like, especially interesting because it seems almost sadistic to, like, make someone, like... <laughs> There's, like, one thing that she does when she's like, come on now, boys, let me see your sweat too. And every time I see her do it, it's, like, humiliating and wretched and like seeing her like fully commit to that character and um and the fact that then people are moved to tears by her doing those retarded arm motions is like it's it's so true that it like it transcends the word true it's like something else it's like mere like ultimate reality no, it's so, you're so right. I mean, also, like, the, the camera angles, not seeing, like, she's wearing this, like, horrible, like, leotard suit, whatever. She, <laughs> she looks like she's completely flat. Like, you, you know, her ass looks awful. And you're filming her from behind, and she's doing her little, like, hand motions. And you're like, oh, my God, this is, like, this is exactly what celebrity is all about. And there are all yes. these people crying. All these people, like her sister, starts crying at the end. <laughs> like, yeah, this is this is this is the importance of the spectacle. And I feel it because I am often moved to tears by what when celebrities try so hard and fail. Like you know, <laughs> I I have cried about Kim Kardashian before, and I'm not kidding. Like I like I feel so emotionally moved by her, and it's like I don't know. It just is unbelievable that, like, a movie made in the last, like, five years was allowed to have, like, such, like, a a clear view of culture and then show it off. And it makes so much sense that it flopped and no one knows about it and critics didn't get it and everybody hates it. Because, like, this has such a, a 
hard-boiled like take on reality that like of course everyone would be pissed off like having to watch natalie portman prance and thrash her arms around and then have to accept that this is real like this is where the 9-11s and school shootings have ended up is like in the camp of the absurd and the horrific no-ass leotard like that is where it's all wound up true oh my god i mean i think it's really interesting how box Labs came out the same year as the stars born and a star is born you know ended up like winning all these awards and people were praising it and it's like oh my god you know like lady gaga in this role and stuff and they basically they get compared all the time whenever there's like a box Lux review on youtube people like compare it to a star is born completely misunderstanding that box Lux is the thing that exposes a star is born yes you know the is the the complete like failed project that it is like it doesn't say anything about fame doesn't say anything about celebrities nothing. doesn't say anything about anything yeah exactly so <laughs> nothing yeah because a star is born is like the fantasy of what vox lux exposes to be not so like the idea that people have artistry that can like speak to something powerful which I do think is true, for, honestly, but I mean, like, Vox Lux knows that in terms of at least, like, what's, you know, popular and, like, what's, you know, real, that's never going to be the case. So there's never going to be Lady Gaga, like, emotionally professing trauma in a way that actually moves people. It's all going to be Natalie Portman in the leotard. And then when you look at Chromatica, which is the Gaga album she did immediately, <laughs> it's an album about trauma and rape and, like, hardship and, like, like chronic illness and it's like her (laughs) on a fictional planet in leotards and wigs like throwing her arms around and screaming ultimately that's all that that's all that it is yeah i mean it's it's exactly what it is i mean the whole thing with vox lex as well is that like you know she is what i find really interesting is that so we're supposed to believe that this girl survived a school shooting, right? She sang this like sad little song that she wrote with her sister on TV. And then they sold her as an adult pop star making <laughs> songs about like, you know, letting somebody's body talk or whatever and like wearing all this like glitter helmet makeup and yeah. like, dominatrix bondex little suits. And it, I guess exactly what it is. Because doesn't it feel so true? Like, the fact that, like, they would put this, like, school shooter victim in that latex dress and, like, make her do, like, EKG and that, like, all those songs. It's, like, that is, like, actually what would happen. And the fact of them, like, something that I think is really special about the movie is that, like, it does recognize, like, the ugliness, like, the Lady Gaga, like, Chromatica thrashing. And, it like, it shows it. But... There is something absolutely transcendental and sublime about what she does and that music. Like, the stupid, bad songs, like, they they actually do move your heart in some, like, in some bizarre way. Like, during that, like, final concert sequence, you really do, like, you really feel something. You actually are, like, moved in a way and... I think that remains true for Lady Gaga as well as, like, any other, like, contemporary celebrity is that, like, they have sold their souls to Satan, their music is absolute garbage, they're products of an, of 300 years of cultural violence, and yet all the same, like, even in the midst of all that swampy stupidity, there is something that is absolutely moving and true. 
That's that's really true. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, those songs are horrible. They were like written by Sia and stuff, and it's just, which is also interesting that she was tied to that project. You know. Well, I haven't like, thought about Sia this. Is someone who I think Sia yeah. didn't know what she was doing. I think that she, like, literally like, wrote those songs in earnest, and that's why they work so well in this movie, is because she wrote them in, like, complete honesty, like, thinking that, like, these are actually, like, moving songs or whatever. And because they're not, and are clearly an attempt to be <laughs> so, they actually end up going, like, horseshoe theory and working. That's true. I, I Yeah, I buy that. Because Sia is someone who is, like famous but she's famous in a weird way where she's mm -hmm. famous for not wanting to be famous and hiding from fame but also like i don't know i remember listening to this um c word podcast episode it's like a lena dunham podcast oh yeah and they were doing and i don't remember who they did an episode on but they did an episode on someone and invited to see as a guest like <laughs> to like give her opinion on it i would die to hear about, this like, <laughs> you have to I mean it's great and she talks about like her experience with fame right she talks about how like she was like an indie pop star from like Australia for a while but she wasn't dealing with fame very well and she decided that she was gonna you know do the the background work instead like she was gonna be a producer and a songwriter for other people and then she wrote a song and recorded it and some some DJ ended up using it in his uh in his song that that one became oh David Guetta yeah 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 and then it became like a number one hit and so she was like and that and the way she describes it she's like that one song that one number one hit ended up buying me a house so it was like okay i guess this works i guess people want to hear my voice after uh, after all so i'm gonna do it but i don't want to show my face so i'm just gonna use this child as a <laughs> like i don't maddie I don't ziggler from thing. dance moms yeah yeah, exactly. I'm just going to use this child as a, you know, as a step in for me and she's going to be my image and my voice is going to be my voice. And that's what I ended up doing. And that's how it worked. And I was like, I was just listening to it, like completely taking it back. Like, oh my God, like this is so genius and evil. Yeah. And I mean, it's especially genius and evil, like in the context, because like, I think that like her being, I don't like fame. It's like so stupid. Because like who, do you, do you believe that anyone who's famous, like doesn't like being famous? I think they all do. I think once you taste it. I mean, I it. think they, yeah, but I think they like being famous. Okay, they like feelings like they don't like being famous. Exactly. But you can only feel that when you're famous. Right. So th th that's exactly it. And so, <laughs> so <laughs> a crashing sound in the distance, like her, like being like so put upon by fame like so critical of it and, like oh i'm gonna do all this stuff it's like then when she does vox lux and she's like oh i'm so critical of fame i'm gonna write like you know a really empowering song for a school shooting victim it it, it really like all checks out and i love the music to this ekg is incredible it is. It's great. I love Hologram as well. I've listened, oh my God. I've listened to that all. Hold up. Hologram is the best song of like the last 20 years. It's so good. It is so good. And I love I love the fucking music video. Like, I wish it was longer. I, I wish it was real. Like, I actually yeah. crave for Celeste to be famous. Like, I want her. Because the, the thing about Vox Lux is, like, this fantasy of the school shooter victim turned pop star is 
actually exactly what like American culture like needs to heal and like maybe in the fantasy of this universe like things are actually good because like we were able to like truly translate our bizarre like pop cultural sensations and feelings about death and mass death and mass violence and if we were able to like correctly and artfully translate that into bad pop music then maybe things would be better. Like they maybe they're maybe things are great in Vox Lux. Like I don't know. Like not, maybe maybe they are. <laughs> I mean, maybe they are. Yeah, not to think about it. I mean, at least you know, at least she's still a celebrity. We don't even really have celebrities in that way anymore. I don't know. I mean, it kind of makes me think of again. It's not to like bring up Columbine, but like the whole like Marilyn Manson Columbine connection, or basically his career like got destroyed after Columbine because people yeah. were blaming him for it. Like I think it's kind of the opposite of what people should have done. There's one moment. Oh my god. There's one moment uh, where she's in bed with that like uh, indie rock star who ends up being the father of her child when she's like, like 16 years old. She's like 14. I think she's like 14 there. So camp. <laughs> And it's like like they're, they're she like just lost her, her virginity to him after doing a little dance routine <laughs> while he was like high on her painkillers and they're like laying in bed together and she's talking about her um she's talking about her like nightmares and she says she also says to him like you make the kind of music the boy who shot me used to listen to and he's like I think and he's like well maybe that music is the only thing that could have saved him and all of those kids and she's like I don't know I like to make the kind of music that when people listen to it, they don't have to think about anything. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I just think that that's like a brilliant scene. And it's so much about how, like how we used art and music to think about these things in the past in the way that we use it now culturally. Mm -hmm. Cause like, you know, the era of like the sensitive, like rock star symbol, like Bob Dylan or like Kurt Cobain is over. Right. Like, I mean, now, Everyone is emo, but everyone is emo in such a commercial way. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I mean, nothing isn't commercial anymore, and neither is Celeste by the end of the movie. Like, she is um, on her sixth album titled Vox Lux, and as she says, her music's getting worse, and obviously her shows are too, but it's like, even in that commercial sense, like, there's still that, like, shred of humanity, and I'm just like... I can't find it in anyone of that caliber anymore. And it's like heartbreaking, but, but I find it. I don't know what I'm going to say at all. (laughs) I'm like heartbroken by the death of fame. (laughs) Me too. No, I am too. I, it just makes me think of that one scene, like, um, where right before like the um, the end concert, like right before she starts performing, she's like having a breakdown in the um, in the changing room. She's like, you know, jumping around and she's like screaming and she's like, they treat me like I'm not a person anymore. And her sister manager like trying to calm her down. And it's like in that, and she like breaks down and she cries and she's like, I just want to be, you know, I just want to be queen for them. I just want to be like the best version of myself for them like mm-hmm. for my fans for the people who make all of this possible and it's like there is an element of like yeah an element of humanity to it despite the fact that she's this like you know icon of, of a she's like an icon she's not really a person she doesn't really she doesn't really have a life i think you know what's really interesting as well like all those because the movie the the last portion of the movie mm-hmm. like that takes place in the present day it's all about her like, going around like um 
empty hotel rooms and like empty like conference rooms and like just sort of the the background of what happens yeah. in a celebrity's life is so incredibly empty and bland and, and yeah because you can totally imagine any famous person is like what 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 the actual conduct of their life looks like is not the you know instagram projection but is like the endless transit between different hotel rooms and like there's something really powerful as well about them like going out to that diner and it just being such an awkward tense like unbelievable interaction the whole time that they're there and they like can't even like end like the interaction in public like you really can't imagine that like fame abstracts people into these entities like so impossible to interact with that they end up like not being able to function in the world at all right it makes me think of that video of connie julia fox and like madonna and whoever else was in you know that that video that went viral on twitter where they're like sitting in some random room listening to music and like it's like they're all separate completely separate from each other as if they were sitting in the room alone like none of them are like like julia fox is like straight up laying on connie but they're not even like interacting with each other no it's just so empty (laughs) of anything yeah and it's just like where do we okay because i you know i brought this up to you when we did our call together on hate fiction and it's something i'm thinking about a lot as i've reached the end of uh season two of i'm so popular which is that i do have like a desire to be famous like i do like i do want to be able to like with my own ego and, like, with the art that I make and with my own presentation, like, be able to enter, like, the cultural consciousness somehow in a, in a, in a way. And I, I know it's, like, a selfish and, like, you know, kind of fetishistic, like, desire, but it's, like, I know that it's impossible. And also, even if I did, it wouldn't mean anything. So I, it's bizarre that I still, like, feel that way. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, I mean, I think, I mean, all desires are selfish and meaningless, but that's what right. makes them like meaningful as well right because obviously the moment you get what you want you don't want it anymore but it's like the chase is worth it like the the rise to the top is important i don't know i mean obviously you can still have like niche fame that's something i think niche fame might even be better than mainstream fame by far come to think of it Right. I mean, because you get to like actually enter into people's lives in a way that you can't really do on a big scale anymore. And it's like because of the algorithm, like once, you know, somebody likes the way that you are online in in the little niche, it's like they're going to see you endlessly on a loop. Like they're going to see your tweets, they're going to see your selfies, they're going to see your whatever. You're just, they're going to be stuck in a loop with you. So yeah. that's one way of doing it. Yeah, because I think like something that ties like Nicole Brown Simpson's death and the O.J. Simpson trial and Vox Lux all together is that fame can and has in the past, like, been able to harness culture into, like, extreme mass movements that end up, like, pulverizing the way people think about the world. And, you know, as one person just, like, sitting here in a wig and lipstick, like, talking to someone in a different country, just, like, chatting about a movie. It's, like, I I do have a fantasy that, like, one day, like, this could, like, mean something significant. And I would absolutely sign a contract with Satan right away to make that true. 
I mean, I think maybe in a way that we are doing it subconsciously, but, you know, interacting with these ideas and talking about them and like putting all the stuff online, I think we're all, I mean, I have this theory about the internet that I talk about a lot that like every time you post something, you're basically selling your soul piece by piece. Yeah. Because now, you know, fame, the idea of fame, the idea of like media attention is so like fractured and decentralized that basically what, what you know what the people that were involved in the OG, in the OG trial did by making it a public spectacle we're doing day by day by just existing as people online yeah the like, more you post we're not even selling like a juicy celebrity death anymore like i'm just selling the fact usually like that when i'm riding the train like i got like horny cuz i saw someone like hot on the train it's like we're all like you know categorizing our own existences into these like finite moments that we sell on the internet in hopes that you know they can one day mean something to someone and like affect someone else and like leave like an echo in in human development right yeah and it's so i mean i don't know again i don't think that's a bad thing i don't think so either i don't like the I don't, I don't agree with the whole, like, trad thing where it's like, oh, you know, the satanic pedophile Hollywood, blah, 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 all of that. <laughs> like, you should just, like, live in the forest. Like, I think that's, I think that's bullshit. I mean, you can't escape it, right? Like, all this culture, all this death, all this violence is always going to exist around you. You can't really run away from it. It's like, all you can do is just accept it and try to, like, have a good time. And if you want it, you want it. You can't change what you want. No, you can never change what you want. To try to deny your desire only creates, like, more bizarre desires and fetishes within you. And that is ultimately, like, what's happening in Vox Lux is, like, this woman has, like, sold her soul to Satan and she is completely despondent from reality and an absolute nightmare of a person to deal with. But... Because she has her mission and her desires, she's still able to touch and move people's lives and, like, move them and and make them feel something in a really profound way. And I I dream that what I'm doing is going to be capable of the same thing. And I feel no qualms about it. And I, I don't feel guilty about that desire either. <laughs> You shouldn't. I mean, totally. It also, that makes me think of, because there's this whole, like, plot line with the sister, like, wanting to be a pop star as well, right? Right. Like, there are multiple, like, scenes where it's, like, alluded to that, you know, she was the one who always danced. She was the one who, like, always, like, sang. She's the one who, like, writes all of her songs. So, like, she always wanted it, but it's Celeste who ended up getting it. And when they're sitting in that diner, she's, like, trying to talk to her daughter. She's talking about how, like, everyone needs an angle. And your aunt, um, Eleanor, I think the sister's name is, never found that angle. Yeah. And she never, you know, she never fought for what she wanted to. And she could never live this life because she never, because she never actually, like, figured out how to, a way to do it. And if you can't figure out a way to do it, then you don't really want it. Like, if you want fame as an abstract idea, then I think you're never really going to get it. Yeah, because I've been thinking about this as well. It's like, I, you know... I want to be a drag queen, but I still am, like, not working in Tokyo yet, you know? Like, I had a gig in Nagoya, and since I moved, I don't have one yet, and it's, like, I want also to, like, be able to transcend me saying I'm a drag queen to, like, proving it to everyone by, like, having regular, like, bookings and stuff, but it's, like, it. do you want it, or are you going to do it? 
and I think this is like a key philosophy to like being alive and the same thing that happens when people are like I'm a writer like I want to be a writer and then like never publish anything never do anything and just like toil lifelessly it's like I have to you know make myself remember this as well but like you just have to like do it like you just have to like do it and say you're doing it until you can make everyone believe that it's really happening for you right no you're so right I mean there's nothing I hate more than when people are like just so passive about their desires like there's nothing worse than someone who's afraid of their ambitions oh. like truly it's such a pathetic sight like when people <laughs> are like oh yeah I want to you know I want to I want to write and then yeah then nothing happens or I want to do this and then nothing happens and it's like like you can't like life goes by you don't have an endless amount of time like you're never going to be younger than you are right now I don't know I just I think also people are because I think there's this I don't know it makes me think of um girls again like the tv show thank god like all of, <laughs> all, I mean, all of them, like, you know, like Marnie, especially, they're like all like running around being like, I want this thing. I want, you know, I want, I want to, I want to be a singer. I want to be a writer. I want to be like, whatever. And like, none of them really end up doing anything. Yeah. Even <laughs> Hannah, like, who's like probably this, the success story, like her and Shoshana, like Shoshana gets married to like a rich tech guy. And then Hannah is an adjunct professor. Like who the fuck yeah. cares? It's like, it means nothing. If you want something, you have to be Natalie Portman, and you have to sell your soul to Satan. You have to be Celeste. You have to give up all of your earthly moral desires, and you have to rush at life with all of your passion and just make it happen for you. Right, because that's what that's what art is about. I mean, at the end of the day, yes. it's about sacrifice, and you can't make something beautiful if you don't sacrifice anything for it. And if you don't and suffer, it's like, yeah, she. Yeah, exactly. And make everyone else around you suffer, to be honest. I mean, yeah. it's like, you know, I mean, obviously, she's like a horrible person to everyone in her in her life. She's like a horrible mother, a horrible sister, all blah, blah, blah. But it's like, does it matter at the end of the day? No, because like, all these people come to her concert to watch her horrible show, and they love her, <laughs> and they cry. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of beautiful. I mean, I don't yeah. know. Because no matter how evil Celeste is, no matter how terrible of a person she is, and no matter how wretched everything she's done on this planet is, for a fleeting moment at that concert, she was able to make everyone feel exactly how she wanted them to feel. And seeing those people dancing like idiots, and there's a really special thing Brady Colbert, the director, does where he uses like actual like pop concert footage in that sequence that he like captured at like some random events and stuff and like seeing those people like move to tears and like in like these waves of senseless ecstasy it's absolutely empowering to think that you can fuck up the your own life and everyone else is around you but if you can make people feel that and touch humanity and culture in that way then it's all worth it whether or not you've sold your soul to satan right but i find it really interesting because i think people now people now are willing to sacrifice their own lives and everyone like the lives of everyone else around them like make everyone around them miserable to live a life that they call art right? right but i think that's kind of a lazy thing that we started doing because there's a difference between sacrificing everything around you for the sake of something like for the sake of your art but like real art and not like the a horrible life is not art 
it's yeah. a side product of art. That's right. And people tend to like confuse the two, right? It's like, I don't know. I remember reading this like article about Julia Fox where it's like, you know, by dating Kanye, she's like doing like this, like uh, she's doing performance art. She's like fashioning her life into like one grand piece of art. And it's like, no, <laughs> not really. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's especially miserable because like, I, I, I I know exactly what you're talking about. It's like Kardashian colloquium and like their kind of like way of thinking about her. And it's like Kim Kardashian was the person who pioneered like life as art. And like you can like really see that she like feels like successful. And like when she has like a desire to do something, she like tries very earnestly and like fails multiple times and like, keeps working at it, right? And Julia Fox, meanwhile looks like a busted fucking tranny with that awful, awful eyeliner. And it's like, that's not art at all. Like, this is flailing and flapping. And I think to a degree, like, Celeste is also, like, flailing and flapping. But, like, is Julia Fox, like, moving anyone to tears with what she does? Is she, like, is she engendering some enormous feeling in the world? I don't think so. Well, no, not really. But I think what makes, you know, Kim Kardashian an artist and what makes, you know, her life art in that way is the fact that there is a product, right? Like keeping up with the Kardashians is like mm-hmm. hours and hours of recorded conversations, recorded like, you know, life events and stuff. That's the product. Yeah. That, like that's really the art. Like they're performing for something. Yeah, they're ruining their lives and the lives of everyone else around them for this product. But that's 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 the product. Where you're just like, you know, I mean, I think the Julie Fox thing is interesting because a lot of people who like end up like moving to the big city and stuff. And I've talked about this before. It's like they have this idea of what their life is going to be like there and Mm -hmm. what their life should be there in order for them to be, you know, in order for them to call themselves an artist. Yeah. And that life is always miserable. And it's always like, you know, it's all it's all like drug addiction and, you know, toxic relationships and stuff but then nothing actually gets produced out of it uh-huh. like it's literally it's oral history of the city of the scene and whatever and it's like like so i think so that's so boring and trite and like pointless like you're, you're not sacrificing anything for anything you're just like miserable yeah no i think that's exactly true because i i just think that's true and i don't have to add anything else i <laughs> Like, thinking about Celeste and Kim Kardashian and Nicole Brown Simpson and OJ and everyone else, and I just see... I see celebrity and fame as, like, this great cultural gesture to try to make sense out of everything around us. And I want to also be someone who's capable of doing that. And uh, I'm not sure if it's ever going to happen for me. I'm not sure if uh, I'll ever be able to, like, reach, like, the level of influence and, like, be able to say what I want to say at the level I want to. But, like, right now, here we are. You are sitting in Estonia. I'm in Japan. Uh, We're both wearing absurd amounts of makeup. Talking (laughs) about a movie that nobody cares about. And from the midst of all of that, we, I think, have forged something beautiful and true.